Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported at LA Review Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. On this week's show, we're speaking with poet Kaveh Akbar about his new collection, Pilgrim Bell. And I have to say, this collection really stuck with me for a long time, both before the interview and after we had our conversation with Kaveh. The collection is filled with a lot of interesting, challenging, and sometimes even haunting meditations on faith and language, which I found really fascinating and also really fascinating to talk to Kaveh himself. He's a really thoughtful and animated thinker who kind of brings all that to bear on his poetry. So I really enjoyed the conversation. I did too. And I also, I should confess that I, I'm hesitant to read collections of poetry, even from poets that I admire. And Kaveh is certainly one of them. We've published one of the poems from this book in the Quarterly Journal. I've been a fan for a long time, but you know, it's like the lazy animal in me that's like, don't make me read a poem. I just want to watch, I want to do something easy. But just for listeners who might, you know, sort of feel like akin to me, I want to say there's so many like beautiful lines in this book and the only poetry really does that. And Kavi really does it pretty spectacularly. He reads a poem. So we do get a treat at the very beginning of the show. There's like too many that I really loved without going into all of them, but he's all hollow. The devil giggles. He knows his job will be easy. A human, just one long desperation to be filled. How good is that? Yes, it really oh, it's is. It's so good. It's so good. And Kaveh is so, as you were saying, Eric, Kaveh is so thoughtful and so smart. So, yeah, it's a good show. All right. Well, let's get to it. Let's do it. We're thrilled to have poet Kaveh Akbar on the line with us today. Kaveh is the author of the collection Calling a Wolf a Wolf and editor of the Penguin Book of Spiritual Verse. His poems have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Paris Review, and the Best American Poetry Anthology, in addition to other places. He is currently the poetry editor for The Nation. Kaveh joins us today to talk about his latest collection, Pilgrim Bell. Whereas Calling a Wolf a Wolf meditated on addiction and the challenges of recovery, Pilgrim Bell offers a sort of postscript turn to the spiritual as a site for thinking about repairability refracted in multiple images, such as the damaged self, the abuses of empire, the unrecalcitrant penitent, the failures of the faithful, and the untamable's efforts at submission and devotion. Because the work of faith, and thus the work of the faithful, is never complete, indeed, as Kaveh's best lines suggest to us, that work is always inchoate, compromised, confused. The spiritual thus is revealed to us as an experience of cycling makings, unmakings, and remakings. As such, the poems in Pilgrim Bell leave the reader suspended between action and futility, the generosity of love and the pain of loss. Like the pilgrim of the collection's title, we listen for the words that will ring out to us, and we wait in the interim between the tolling to determine how we will respond to its call. Welcome, Kaveh, and thank you for joining us. Wow, that was incredible. Thank you so much. That was so trenchant and searching and beautiful. I feel like you just taught me so much about what I'm up to. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for your time and your attention. Well, flattery will get you everywhere, but I'll turn it over to Medea <laughs> for the first for the first question. Yeah, thank you both. Kaveh, let's start with a reading of one of the poems from this book. Would you mind doing that? Yeah, absolutely. Or no, I would not mind, but yes, I would be <laughs> happy to. Thank you so much. 
This is a poem called An Oversight. I murdered my least defensible vices, stacking them like bodies in the surf. An armada of nurses rode in to cherish the dead. Try harder, little moons, they said to the corpses, spooning eggplant into each mouth. Winter followed winter. Horses coughed blood into the sand. Some pain stays so long, its absence becomes a different pain. They say it's not faith if you can hold it in your hands, but I suspect the opposite may be true. That real faith passes first through the body, like an arrow. Consider our whole galaxy staked in place by a single star. I fear we haven't said nearly enough about that. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. So let's start with your relationship to poetry and your relationship Mm -hmm. as you were growing up. You were born in Tehran, but you moved to the States when you were a child? Yeah, I moved to the States just before I turned three. So, I mean, I was old enough that my first language was still Farsi and that was my first full sentence was gimme ab, ab being the Farsi word for water, which is one of those things that's almost too on the nose, you know, like it's like caught between two different languages and it's like an expression of thirst and, you know, wanting. And it's one of those things that, I could never actually put into a piece of writing because it seems too sort of constructed, but it's true. Did your parents tell you that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my mom told me that. Is that part of your lore as um, <laughs> in your family? Yeah, yeah, it is. Certainly it's part of like, I don't know that my parents were as sort of, they were just like, I don't know, you're thirsty, you know? But, you know, <laughs> yeah. as someone who wrote a first book about addiction and being caught between these two different languages and places and all of this, you know, certainly it was, it felt particularly interesting to me. That makes sense. And so what was your relationship to either Farsi poetry or literature and English? Because I I think one of the notes, and maybe just to preface this a little bit, one of the notes that this poem ends on that you just read, that also makes me think of that is that you say, I fear we have not We haven't said nearly enough about that. And I think that keeps coming back in this book where it's about the inadequacies of language, about falling short, Mm -hmm. about absences. And it strikes me that that must have something to do with how you think about poetry in general, but also maybe how you thought about it growing up. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I have always been frustrated by the inability of language to precisely line up with experience. There's always a delta between the experience of living or the experience of cognition and the language that I can use to represent or relay it. And that delta has stymied me my entire life and has grown wider depending on the language that I'm using or not using. And I realize or I have realized in my adult life that this delta isn't because of some inherent insufficiency of my own ability to wield the language, but rather because language is a technology, right? It's a human technology, right? Like no one is born speaking fluent Farsi or fluent Mandarin or fluent anything, right? Like we invented this 
technology of language to facilitate communication. And like any human construct, it has been deployed to all sorts of malevolent ends. I mean, I think that the English language specifically is one of the most violent technologies we've ever invented. But, you know, Farsi is also a colonial language and a colonized language. And so there is this gulf in between the experience that I'm trying to relay or the psycho-spiritual phenomena that I'm trying to explore and the ability of language to represent or even just illuminate it. And I think that the recognition of that gulf is what the poetry is for, to Mm. play in that gulf. And there's this line that the musician Brian Eno says about listening to old blues records where he talks about the crack and, you know, listening to like a Billie Holiday record or a Sarah Vaughn record. He talks about the crack in the blues singer's voice being the sound of witnessing an emotional event too momentous for the medium assigned to record it. And I think about Mm -hmm. that all the time, witnessing an emotional event too momentous for the medium assigned to record it. I think just about everything that I'm interested in, in human experience is too momentous for the English language, right? All of the great loves and injustices and histories and atrocities and bewilderments that have entered my ken, that have entered my consciousness and my living have overwhelmed the ability of language to represent it. And so the finding out how to do with a poem, what Sarah Vaughn does with her voice on a vinyl record, or, you know what I mean? Like, that's what I have been really, really interested in. I'm also curious, Kaveh, to hear you talk about, you know, what draws you to spiritual verse or spiritual poetry. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you've, you know, you've edited collections of spiritual poetry cited throughout. Pilgrim Bell are obviously several Sufi poets, including Rabia. There's Sufi. You also cite Milton and others. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about kind of what spiritual poetry means to you and kind of what it presents to you, I guess, maybe as like a problem and a promise? (laughs) A problem and a promise is a really interesting and provocative way to frame that. I'm interested in what happens after I die, if anything, or what was happening before, or the why of my being here, or the how of my being here. And I use the word God because it's a tidy catch-all monosyllable, the way that love is a tidy catch-all monosyllable that describes both the affection that I have for my spouse and also the way that I feel about my favorite veggie burrito spot, you know, it's just a tidy catch-all monosyllable. But I understand that people have difficult relationships with that word. I think that, again, what is interesting to me, especially in this collection, is this sort of apophatic way of understanding the divine, right? Which is to say, understanding the divine by what it isn't. The book opens with an assertion, any text that is not a holy text is an apostasy. And then the next page says, well, then it is a holy text. As if by not being an apostasy, if I know that this thing isn't an apostasy, then by your logic, it must be a holy text, right? People like Simone Weil built whole theologies out of this sort of apophatic gesture. But I was also living in 45's America, where so much of his rhetoric was like this sort of weird... These like apophatic epithets where he would say like, oh, I would never say that such and such person is a smelly jerk, you know, but then he's really calling them a smelly jerk Mm -hmm. by saying he would never say, you know what I mean? Like he would do that thing a lot. Right. And so as I was 
thinking about this like apophatic theology, I was also living under the long shadow of this fascistic regime and its corrosive influence on national politics, global politics, global rhetoric, the global spirit, you know? And so all of these things were sort of inflecting each other, right? I don't have one lobe of my brain for thinking about my civic station and one lobe of my brain for thinking about my cosmic station, you know, it all muddles together. And I think that the resulting amalgam is what you see in this book. There's a lovely poem here about praying with your older brother. Mm. And so there's also a way in which it seems like, well, yes, there's all these larger sort of civic political considerations. And at the same time, sort of the, there's something holy about like a very small sort of incident between you and your brother mm-hmm. when you are both on praying rugs and you start laughing and you can't stop. And what is your relationship to spirituality or faith on a more day-to-day sort of basis? I understand that the book engages with it in really sort of a large scale way. Yeah. But there's this moment of a very sort of small, it represents larger scale. I understand that, but. Um, yeah, sure, sure, sure. But like it's very granular. Scale. It's a very yeah. specific iteration. Yeah. Of yeah. And so like, what's the smaller version of that? It varies. You know, it's been a lot of different things in my life. I fast for Amazon and that is something that I don't really understand. There's a lot in my life that plenty of traditional Muslims would not look at and say, you know, that's the way to live a life. But it's also true that my path has been so inflected by all of these other ways of thinking, right? Like one of my favorite writers is the Argentinian writer Jorge Luis Borges. And he talks about how Kafka influenced Cervantes, right? Even though, mm-hmm. you know, Kafka lived hundreds of years after Cervantes. But he says, you know, if you read The Metamorphosis before you read Don Quixote, then your reading of Don Quixote is indelibly inflected by your reading of The Metamorphosis, right? And so Kafka is influencing Cervantes, right? And I think about that all the time with my relationship to Islam or my relationship to my own sort of spiritual loadout is... I'm a Muslim, but I was also raised in America where Christianity was the dominant sort of spiritual force. And then there was also like sort of pop Buddhism in the air, you know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. and all of these paths. And as I have grown older, I've become like more and more interested in this, you know? So, you know, I've read the Bhagavad Gita deeply and the Tao, you know, and all of these texts have inflected my thinking, right? And so just as my experience to life on the planet Earth feels unprecedented. You know, none of, no one else in this conversation was born in Tehran and then moved to America when they were like two and a half and then, you know, moved to Pennsylvania and New Jersey and Milwaukee and da, 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 you know, and no one else has this exact sort of loadout of experience just as I haven't had your experience, right? Or Eric's. And so just as this is unprecedented, so my sort of spiritual loadout feels very Mm. unprecedented, right? And I think that the way that that manifests on a day-to-day basis, you know, I have very traditional looking things like praying with my brother. But I think that one of the things in that poem that makes that, that poem began a thing that I like to ask people at parties that is a fun thing to be asked or to think about is just like, what's the hardest you've ever laughed? That experience is always my answer, you know, like thinking about that experience Mm. where... My brother and I were just like praying together and his foot caught the doorknob. And it's something about like the contrast between like the assumed sort of like austerity and seriousness of the thing that we were doing, you know, just sort of like two boys praying together in this tiny bedroom. And then, you know, the 
obnoxiousness of the sound and then he laughed and then we just couldn't stop laughing right something about the contrast between that we just i mean i we were doubled over literally crying laughing and so like i have these sorts of experiences but then also like poetry feels very spiritual to me you know mm-hmm. not to be too sort of hoity-toity about it but people conceive of prayer as communicating to the divine and meditation as listening for the divine right and poetry mm-hmm. often feels like both poetry feels like both of those things for me the talking and the listening and i also think mm-hmm. that Sorry, I don't mean to just keep going on and on, but this is obviously important to me. And I think that a lot of what poetry does for me is orient me towards the next right action for me to take. And that's what prayer Mm -hmm. does, right? Like I don't pray for the unhoused and then pat myself on the back for being so noble. You know, I pray for the unhoused and then I go buy socks and cliff bars and distribute, you know, or take them to, you know what I mean? Like the prayer points you towards the action, right? The prayer doesn't supplant the action. And that's what the poems Mm. do for me too. The poems point me toward the next right thing for me to do. They don't replace the action. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I mean, it's actually, I think, counter to probably, you know, the more, the sort of basic criticism of what poetry does that it replaces action in some capacity or that people, mm. well, you're just sitting in your house and you're writing your poems and right. <laughs> it's like the kind of normal, yeah. I don't want to say normie critique of poetry, but <laughs> a sort of unconsidered critique, but sometimes accurate. Sometimes that is actually true. Yeah. Um, well, so I mean, it's the same thing that. as, yeah. I mean, it's the same thing as folks who fancy themselves quite pious for having prayed for the souls of people like me, who they say will burn in hell forever. You know what I mean? Or, and it's actually like the absence of action, right? It's that it's actually, and so much of, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but so much of Western, which is a word that I hate because it places the center in Europe, but so much of Western with apologies for use of the word morality is founded on ideas of abstinence, right? Like eight of the 10 commandments are about what not to do. You know, you have like honor thy father and mother. And then there's like eight that are just like, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. Right. You can not murder someone your entire life and not adulterate and not steal and not lie and still be a piece of shit. You know what I mean? Like you can still not do anything for anyone, <laughs> right? None of that is like proactive or about like actually going out and helping in any way. It's all about abstinence, right? Which doesn't feel like a very interesting spirituality for me. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Kaveh Akbar, author of Pilgrim Bell. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Matthew Spector on the line with us today. Matthew's latest book is called Always Crashing in the Same Car on art, crisis in Los Angeles, California. And Matthew is here to give us a book recommendation. Uh, Matthew, what book are you going to recommend? The book I'd like to recommend is Emily Siegel's novel, Mercury Retrograde, which was published in December of 2020 by a small press, a collective called Deluge Books. And um, it's really a book that I've been somewhat obsessed with for the past several months. And I think it kind of, you know, it's, I've noticed that it's it's sort of slowly been gaining a certain amount of traction. There was There was a review in it last week in the TLS and the Times Literary Supplement. I feel like people are sort of finally picking up on the fact that this is such an amazing uh, novel. It's a first novel, and Emily has an art background. Um, she was a uh, part of a, a collective called K Hole, um, and okay, I think people, yeah. 
people know her to some degree as as being one of the coiners of the term normcore, <laughs> which I think right. to her dismay is a is a term that's sort of been widely misinterpreted and misunderstood. But I know I know Emily first and foremost as a, as a novelist. My wife had requisitioned a copy of this book and she was reading it. She said, this is really like amazing. You have to read it. And I think it's an autofiction, which I realize we've seen a lot of over the last couple of years about a young woman named Emily who uh, is working at a, at a tech startup, which is another kind of scenario that we've seen a lot of in the last few years. And yet, <laughs> and also it is so funny and so piercingly, just unbelievably smart so smart and so incisive about so many things about startup culture about occupy about the internet you know i think there are there are there have been you know kind of a welter of books that kind of treat the internet as a as a problem or as a as a subject and i would say that that emily's book doesn't do that which i think is to its enormous credit it feels completely native like it's kind of it's kind of swallowed the internet <laughs> um, without kind of making the internet like its subject or its problem which i think is part but only a part of what makes it interesting i think in some ways i described it somewhere or described it to somebody as being almost like if a young Bret Easton Ellis were an incredibly smart feminist contemporary woman with the kind of intellectual powers of like Don DeLillo or something like the the kind of ferocity of Emily's thinking is so exciting to me. And I know her a little bit, or I've come to know her a little bit. So I know that some of her own touchstones are people like William Gibson or hmm. Eileen Miles or Alice Notley. But oh, I interesting collection. there's a kind of, um, yeah, there's an incredible kind of collision of, of high art and pop art that's happening mm-hmm. in it that I find Absolutely thrilling. And I think, too, the book has this kind of, it feels, and I mean this in the best possible sense, not not undisciplined. It's enormously disciplined, but it has this kind of anarchic or irreverent or there's a quality in it that doesn't feel excessively processed. Like it, it feels like incredibly immediate and alive. And I think she's a writer that people are going to find out about and cotton on to quite a bit in the future. I'm, I'm very excited about her work in process. She's, she's writing a novel called Burn Alpha, it feels like it has almost like a kind of secret history kind of vibe to it. Um, yeah. It's, and I think she's someone who I think that's kind of part of her process or part of her project rather is kind of feeling like I'm really, really into Alice Notley and I'm really, really into the Kardashians and these things are not, you know, something can be very kind of steeped in high culture references and incredibly bingeable and pulpy and, and fun and amusing at the same time. And that is a project I am completely here for. And, and I think it shows up in the novel in Mercury Retrograde in all kinds of exciting ways. It sounds really good and very contemporary. Matthew, will you tell us the title again and the author? Yes, the book is Mercury Retrograde and the writer's name is Emily Siegel, S-E-G-A-L. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. We've been talking to Matthew Spector. His new book is called Always Crashing in the Same Car on Art crisis in Los Angeles, California. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now, back to our conversation with Kaveh Akbar, author of Pilgrim Bell. I'm a little afraid that I'm kind of showing my like 
Catholic background when I ask this question, <laughs> but I'm very interested in the moments where you articulate faith or the encounter with faith's mythology as being a site of kind of like pain or dislocation or frustration. Mm -hmm. I really love in the miracle where you give us what feels to me a quite fresh encounter with the story of Gabriel. And part of what mm -hmm. you are relaying is the Archangel Gabriel comes to the prophet Muhammad. And, you know, the story that we usually get is he kind of bequeaths to him a knowledge of spiritual reality. You know, there's uh, correlates with the book of Daniel in terms of like Jewish prophecy. There's also mm. the most famous one for Catholics and probably the creepiest is when he speaks into Mary's ear and suddenly she mm -hmm. becomes pregnant with Christ, right? So, mm -hmm. but in, in most of the tellings, this is kind of, it's a, it's a quite pleasurable mode of enunciation, right? But mm -hmm. but in the version that you give us in the miracle, it's actually Gabriel squeezing Muhammad so tight that all that then can come in is revelation, right? So this is a very <laughs> different way of thinking about that kind of relationship. And I just wanted to hear you talk a little bit about what you were doing with kind of revisiting that very popular, you know, image and story. God, that's so beautiful. Uh, and the correspondence with the book of Daniel and the Annunciations, it's really lovely. It's a fascinating story. And what's always struck me about the story of the Prophet Muhammad receiving the word is just how scared he must have been, right? I mean, he's he's an illiterate guy, like fasting and sort of camping, you know, in this cave. And an archangel comes to him and says, you know, read, you know, and he's like, I can't, you know, he, I mean, you know, how terrifying to like look in the eyes of an archangel and say, I can't do the thing that you're asking me to do. Like I, I literally, like I don't, I never learned to read, you know, and like many people in his time and place in the world, he was illiterate. What a terrifying thing to have to say, you know, I can't. And then it's squeezed out of, you know, it, it, the idea that the absence of pure clarity and pure knowing how many people, I mean, I know a lot of people who have had their in moments of desperation been like, just give me like one sign, right? Just give me, you know, flick the lights on and off and I'll devote the rest of my life to you. I, I just need that one bit of clarity. And, you know, everyone that I know has been denied that, you know, that denied that moment of like absolute unfettered clarity. And so to have, you know, the presence of a literal archangel in front of you, squeezing you, like replacing the vast unknowing and the vast uncertainty and bewilderment with physical pain, right, is it's a gift, you know? I mean, it's the the pain of the pain of uncertainty versus a physical pain, right? Um, the the pain of the spirit versus the pain of a physical pain. Like I know physical pain. Like I've, you know, I've shattered my pelvis, I've broken a ankle, you know what I mean? Like I, I physical pain is whatever, you know, you pass through it. Right. But, but spiritual pain is corrosive to everything else, you know? And, and I think that, and, you know, I'm not, obviously, you know, I'm not the first person to think along these lines, the idea that pain could lead one towards a kind of insight or illumination is literally as old as poetry. Like the earliest attributable author in human literature is Anhedwana, a Sumerian priestess who lived 43 centuries ago and she wrote about like the profound 
feeling exiled both from faith and from her literal kingdom of Ur. But I mean, it's it's the precipitating subject of all of our species of literature, right? So it's just another sort of whisper into this conversation that has preceded me by millennia. I mean, I wonder then if the position of the reader who you address in the poem is then perhaps the most abject because for the reader, right, that's who, as you say, Gabriel isn't coming for you. And that basically then will we be suspended in this kind of lack of access to the Mm -hmm. ineffable or to the divine insight? Yeah, well, and the first reader of any poem that I write is myself, right? The first inhabitant of the second person in anything that I write is myself. Is that a thing that you worry about then? Not being able to get access or not knowing if you actually have access or if it's just more human delusion? Of course, of course. I mean, I don't know how anyone moves through this world without feeling immobilized by that anxiety. The only people who speak in certainties are, you know, zealots and tyrants, right? I mean, everyone else is sort of lurching between existential crises. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Totally. Uh, so then the truly faithful are the ones who wrestle with the inability to know. That has been my experience. You know, I've met people who feel very quite confident and certain, but I have never known absolute unfettered certainty. Um, and when I have, I've been wrong. You know, when I, when I believe you, you know what I mean? Like when yeah, I, yeah, when I, yeah. and so, I mean, that's so much the project of this book, right? Is to, is to teach myself to sit in uncertainty without groping desperately to resolve it. It's beautiful. Okay. So, well, maybe from that, there's part of sort of exploring that pain and that uncertainty. <laughs> Actually, probably I'm not Catholic. Jews know nothing about beauty, aside from... Oh, that's not true. The, the that's not true at food. all. Um, no, no, I, I know. It's just too neurotic to understand it. Um, I'm, not, but, I'm, not, I'm not Catholic either, for what it's worth. Yeah, but but in a, in a way, actually, you know, I, I think... I wonder if Catholicism is like a very good example of this. And I should just stop my preamble and say what I'm going to say, which is like, there's there's also a part in this book where you talk about making all of this beautiful. And mm-hmm. it's in it's in my father's accent mm-hmm. um, where you write, I can't write this without trying to make it beautiful, submission, resistance, surrender. You know, something that I think is kind of missing from this conversation thus far is a discussion of beauty. Like we're mm-hmm. making this, that whatever pain and, and struggle you're talking about. And, you know, uh, and the reason I bring Catholics up is, I mean, the Vatican is, <laughs> if not a, a, rep, a representation of barbarism, a very beautiful mm. place, right? Like, yeah, they, yeah. The Catholic both. Church, yeah, they're very, the Catholics have, have made a lot of beauty out of a lot of blood. Anyway, as like a child, when I wanted to be Catholic, there was one of the things that I thought about was like, God, they, there's so much beauty here. There, mm-hmm. There is. If, if there's going to be suffering, should you do it in a cathedral that is like an absolutely stunning piece of architecture? That is, that's the wrong answer. I I think that's like a child's version of how to deal with uncertainty, but Mm -hmm. what's your relationship to it? There's a resistance here, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. you obviously give into it. And part of your, I mean, if you just like 
in the simplest possible terms, part of your maybe job as a poet is to make considerations like this beautiful. What do you, how do you think about beauty in terms of all of these different sort of questions that are generally not considered that beautiful? Yeah. I mean, Keith says beauty is truth, truth, beauty. That is all you know on earth. Right. And, and I think that, you know, what I am ineffably after is this kind of immutable truth, which of course evades me and is horizontal and like the horizon you never actually arrive at, right? You just march towards it forever. And I don't know that I feel that my job as a poet is to beautify experience or to beautify the world or to render with acuity, but it's hard to displace that reflex, right? Mm. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to, especially, I mean, the poem that you quote, is a poem in which, I mean, it's a really ugly poem. You know, it's a really, it's a poem that makes it, I mean, it heebies my jeebies to read it. You know, it makes me feel really uncomfortable about my own behavior um, and my own loadout of psychopathologies. And, and so the reflex to try to beautify that, you know, to try to, or to try to euphemize my own behavior, right? I think that one difference between the poet and person, well, the poet that I am today and the poet that I was, say, five years ago, is that five years ago, I might have recognized that I was trying to beautify it and taken those moments out, right? Or like revised those moments, if I recognized it at all. And today, if I do recognize it, as I did in that moment, instead of like taking it out or revising it, I both leave it in and then leave the moment of recognition in, you know, like I can't write this without trying to make it beautiful. So, so submission, resistance, surrender to just sort of leave that process in, which, I mean, it's not pretty sounding, you know, it's not, it doesn't taste good on the tongue. It doesn't scan well, you know, it's not particularly mellifluous poetry. Right. But, uh, nor is it a particularly pretty thought, you know, conceptually or ideologically, but it is, the most honest thing that I can say in that moment, which it feels more honest to me than revising the poem, right? Than revising my ugliness out of the poem, right? Or revising my human reflexes out of the poem. Does that make sense? Is that, yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, that makes sense. It seems like a very difficult reflex to follow. You know, especially like Fitzgerald said that after reading Keats for a while, everything else sounds like humming and whistling. Um, and, and I, I got, I was in Italy this summer and actually was in the Vatican, but also visited Keats's grave. And so I'm, I, you know, I feel, you know, when you're talking about like this, you know, the beauty is true, truth, beauty, that is all, you know, yeah, that, that reflex to flatten the two and conflate the two and try to, I don't know, drive a wedge between them. But the thing is like, Keats could do both. You know what I mean? Like Keats could say the thing in a brutally and uh, unflinchingly true way. And it also like scan, you know, but you know, for us mortals, you know, we just sort of, we just sort of chirp and whistle or whatever. <laughs> there are genuinely a lot of references in this book that are, that are really, I thought like um, the Milton reference was fun. Anyway. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. yeah which of, who are some of the authors that you were looking toward when you were writing this book? Yeah. I mean, not to, not to just make this, this a Borges fan podcast, but for one, he's always a huge part of my brain, but also he was really obsessed with the Sahara and he was a little bit of an Orientalist, uh, but you know, I love him. Uh, yeah. I, I feel like ever, it doesn't matter. Um, doesn't matter what I think about him, but, uh, but he definitely was an Orientalist, but he finally gets to go to the, the Sahara and he, I think this is late in his life when he's blind or maybe going blind. And he reaches down and scoops up a fistful of sand and just lets it sort of slide through his fingers. And he's like, I'm modifying the Sahara. And that was his big epiphany. I'm getting goosebumps talking. Oh, I don't know if you can see this over the Zoom call, but I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. But, um, but I think about that all the time, like just every, I mean, I'm, I, I just, read a lot. I'm like a kind of, I just like to read things and I, you know, and then I read a thing that someone references another thing. And so I read that thing. So, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, this book references Seneca and Dunn and Milton and, and Carson and Robert Hayden. There's a form invented by Terrence Hayes paying homage to Gwendolyn Brooks that I try out. You know, I mean, there's, it's really kind of just all over the place and lowercase c Catholic in its, um, in the kind of world that it creates out of these other texts, you know? And I feel like that's reflective of my own kind of psychic Sahara. You know what I mean? Like I, the same brain that I use to read Seneca or Rapia or the Bhagavad Gita or Gilgamesh is also the brain that I use to watch the NBA finals and the Hardy's commercial that's on, you know, in the middle of game five of the NBA finals, you know what I'm saying? And, and so all of that language is modifying my Sahara. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That's such a nice way to put it. Thank you so much. I just, I don't want to claim credit. It's, that's completely Borges's way of putting it, but, but yeah, I, I, it's useful. On that Citational Apologia. We will close. Thank you so much for joining us. We've been speaking with Kave Akbar, author most recently of Pilgrim Bell. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Teasley-Vladen.